Well, what's up, everybody? Good to see you. My name is Austin, one of the pastors here. You know, it's always a good Sunday when I don't even have a seat myself. So I love it. It's great. Um, man, Andrew's holding babies in the back. It's just great. It's awesome. So, uh, <laughs> uh, man, thanks for being here, guys. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've had a ton of snow, and so I'm thankful that Jesus held back snow, and we're all here together. So uh, anyways, we're going to be jumping in. We're kicking off our Advent series uh, this morning. Like Andrew said, Advent simply means coming or arrival, and so it's kind of this preparation season for our hearts to get excited for Jesus coming for what Christmas really is. The world is trying to give us their own Advent, thinking that Christmas is about a million different things. So we as a church, as a family, are saying, no, we want to focus on Jesus, and so that's where we're going. We'll look at love, uh, peace, hope, and then joy. Uh, so really excited. But hey, uh, as we're jumping in, we'll be in Romans 5. You can open up your Bibles there if you got one. Um, as you're getting there, though, here's the question. I need you guys to be honest. Raise your hand if you have already watched a Hallmark Christmas movie this year. Raise your hand. I have failed as a pastor. I'm kidding. Uh, uh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, everyone loves them, right? Like Hallmark Christmas love stories are blowing up in our culture today, right? Everyone loves them. This year alone, just in one year, 30 Hallmark, uh, uh, the Hallmark Channel is releasing 34 new Christmas Hallmark movies. Like, how do you have that many of the same story? You know what I mean? Like, it's a crazy, like, have you noticed that, like, every single Hallmark Christmas story basically has the same predictable plot line, you know? Like, you got some snow, you got an, a crisis that comes, you got an unexpected helper, you know, that miraculously shows up, some romance, a small picturesque town, no cell phone service, you know, or, or limited... <laughs> And then a happy ending, and boom, you got yourself a Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Like, that's like what it's made up of. And so I looked at uh, this year, some of these, and so I picked out a couple titles for you guys to so show you guys know kind of how creative Hallmark is getting with their titles. So here's a couple. Homegrown Christmas, A Cookie Cutter Christmas, A Dream of Christmas, A Perfect Christmas. It's like they just typed in, like, adjectives, you know, and then, like, Christmas, you know, like, boom, okay. Here's, and then my, here's my personal favorite. My wife and I are going on a date night. I'm going to watch this gingerbread romance. You know, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, we're looking forward to that. I mean, there's a website you can actually go to online and type in a couple numbers, and it creates its own, uh, your own Hallmark Christmas movie for you. So here's what I got after I took the survey. By the way, Facebook is blowing up because, like, I searched Hallmark movies. Now it's, like, thinking I like Hallmark Christmas movies now on Facebook. I'm not okay with that. Like, I want more privacy. Anyways, um, here, here's the story I got for uh, my Hallmark movie, if you guys are wondering. Uh, a contemplative female secretary is unhappy, uh-oh, because her significant other left her. Uh, and she was supposed to bring him to her family's Christmas, okay? Massive crisis, massive dilemma, right? She didn't have her boy to take to Christmas. Everything changes when she meets a funny male writer struggling to get his new story, uh, children's story published while they're both fighting over the same item at the department store. How serendipitous. Through crazy circumstances and with a little help from a secretive woman next door, she soon discovers that your first love isn't always the right love. Boom. You know, we make millions. You know, if we come in and get, you all want to invest, we're going to make a lot if we want to go in together on this story, right? It would go crazy. Now, 85 million people will watch Hallmark Christmas movies this year alone. That's crazy, right? People love them. So here's my question for us all. Is that really love? Question for you, as you've watched Hallmark movies, as you kind of know the story, know the whole plot, is that really love? Like, is the epitome of love when two attractive people serendipitously meet, figure out they want to be together, and then live happily ever after? 
Is there a greater love out there than a predictable, mutually good-looking, warm and fuzzy story? And if you're wondering, the glorious answer is yes, there is, right? And it won't be found on the Hallmark Channel. It'll be found in our Bibles, right? Uh, so we're going to dive deeper into this unthinkable love story as we see the greatest display of love ever um, that's ever happened. And so let's jump in. We'll read uh, Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. Uh, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, okay, so my first thing I want us to see is our condition. Uh, our condition, and it's unlovable. Our condition is unlovable. So our culture, at large, I think you guys could agree with this and help me with this, uh, has agreed and connotated that love is tolerance. Like basically to be loving is to be tolerant, meaning that to love someone is to agree with them. Our culture at large thinks it's unloving to disagree with what someone else thinks. And so the, the version of this love says the best way that for me to love you is to agree with what you think and let you think that, right? Like that's our culture's view of love. It's tolerance. And so here's why this matters. In 1 John 4, 16, it says that God is love. So he's the epitome of love, the expression of love, the exact definition of love. It's just who he is. But in Romans 5, 6 through 8, God says some things that to our culture don't sound very loving, right? He confronts us. And verse 6 says that we're weak and we're ungodly. And then verse 8 says that we're still sinners. We're actually sinners. This doesn't sound like the kind of love that our culture has made for us, right? God confronts us and calls us out on our sin and what we're currently doing. He says that we're weak, ungodly, and sinful. So my question is, if God is love, then how can that be loving, right? For him to confront us and not just be tolerant of what we're doing. And so we're going to walk through what each of these descriptors of us mean. But before we get there, let me explain it uh, this way. Uh, Imagine you have have consistent migraines. Like all, if you ever had a migraine, they're horrible, right? Imagine you have, so every couple days you have a migraine. It's just throbbing and horrible and you just want to escape from everything, you know? And you're wondering, why are these so often? Why are these so painful? And so you finally say, let's, let's go to the doctor. And so you go to the doctor and you get an MRI. And as you're sitting with the doctor, um, he's got uh, the MRI, the results looking, and you just see a disappointed look on his face. Unfortunately, it turns out that you have an aggressive brain tumor. Okay, and um, so the way I see it, doctor's got two options from that point, right, of seeing that result. He can, one, first option, he can tell you everything looks fine, give you some Excedrin migraine and prescribe you some other medicine, and then send you on your way thinking that you've just got a happy life and you're good, right? That's option one. I'll call it ignorance is bliss, right, where it's better to ignore the problem than to walk through the pain of healing, right? Ignorance is bliss, option one. Hey, you're good to go. Scans are, are clear, right? The other option is for him to sit you down, boldly look you in the eyes, and, uh, and, and tell you the bad news that you have a brain tumor that's killing you, right? And he doesn't stop there, though. Uh, he, he, since you know the bad news, you can actually move from that and take the right steps it would take to actually give a chance to take that tumor out of your brain but you're devastated as you hear it, right? Like anyone would be. Your life isn't all butterflies and rainbows. It'll be surgery and chemo and hopefully recovery. And so I'll call this option, the truth hurts, okay? Now, one of the big differences between the two options is the way you leave the room. With option one, ignorance is bliss. You walk out happy, relieved, excited, but fooled, thinking you're gonna live for the next 40 years, right? Uh, 
And, and, and so with option two, the truth hurts, you walk out under the weight that you have a tumor in your brain that is killing you, right? You're not happy, you are broken and unraveled, but there is a slight glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe, maybe the surgery and chemo could take it out forever and you could actually live a happy, long life. And so can I ask you, City Light, which option is more loving, one or two? Don't be mistaken, love is not tolerance, right? Love is graciously proclaiming the truth, even when it hurts, hoping that it could heal, right? That's what love is. And yes, it'd be far easier for me to stand in front of you this morning and tell you that in and of yourselves, you're doing great. You're batting a thousand. You're doing awesome. MRI scans are clear. No need for a surgeon. But the reality is every single one of us is born with a cancer called sin, right? And, 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 and we need someone to tell us the truth about that sin. That's actually love, okay? And this is what verse 6 is doing for us. Paul, the author, is being this gracious doctor that sits us down, looks us in the eyes, puts his hand on our shoulder, and says, man, you've got cancer, and I need to tell you about it because we need to act fast, and there's some things we can do. There, you're not left without hope, though. There is hope, and there is a healer, and so let's walk through our diagnosis and condition. Amen? I know you guys are super excited right now about that. So anyways, uh, verse 6, it gets better, I promise. We've got to hear the bad news before we hear the good news. Verse 6 says that we are weak. We were still weak, meaning we're deficient. We're not self-sustaining. We're unable to make it on our own. Now, in John chapter 5, there's this story. It's one of my favorite stories. Jesus is interacting with a man that's uh, crippled, so he can't walk, and, um, and this man is hanging out at this pool, and they believe that this pool has healing powers. And so um, all these people with disabilities are hanging around this pool, and they're waiting for it to bubble up, and when it bubbles up, they believe uh, that the first one in the pool would actually get healed of their disability. So you can imagine all these people around just hoping and waiting, and they're all disabled, and they're watching, and when will this bubble, and once it does, we're, boom, we're in. And so Jesus comes to this man. This man's been waiting for 38 years at this pool. 38 years, day after day after day, hopeless, unable to make it. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Like, do you want to get better? And in and, and, and John 5, verse 7, the crippled man says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He basically says, yeah, Jesus, I want nothing else in my life than to be healed. Like, I, I do not like that I am crippled right now, but I can't make it on my own. I just can't get myself there. I need someone to take me there. And when I do get there, when I actually make it there, I'm not fast enough and someone gets in there before me, right? Friends, this is what it means when Paul says we're weak, right? We're unable to make our way to God. Um, and so it doesn't, uh, just to be clear, it doesn't matter if you've memorized the whole Bible. It doesn't matter if you've been valedictorian of every single school you've ever went to. It doesn't matter if you make six figures. It doesn't matter if you're over 50, uh, all of us are weak, unable to make our way to God. We are weak when it comes to our position before him. We cannot make our way to him. We need to actually be carried. We can't live the way God planned us to live on our own strength, right? We can't do the things he's calling us to do on our own strength. And so maybe um, you're physically strong, or maybe you are emotionally strong, but without Jesus, you and I are all spiritually weak. Right? That's just our diagnosis, who we are in desperate need of help. And so just in case this wasn't clear enough, if I can just make this clear, Christians aren't self-made people, okay? We don't walk into church this morning and with our chest held high and, and just like, yeah, man, we're, uh, I got myself here. 
I figured some things out and got myself, no, that's not the posture. You don't stroll into heaven thinking, man, wow, that, I'm so glad I made it. You know, I just really killed the game back there and I'm doing great. No, that's not the way. You don't look back in your life and see your life transformed and give yourself a pat on the back. No, it's God. It's always been God. It will always be God. He's the one working. You're weak. He's strong, right? This is what God does. And so the first thing is the doctor has to tell us is that we're weak. We're unable to make our way to him on our own. Second thing, the end of verse 6 gives another descriptor, and it says we're ungodly. We're ungodly, okay? Basically, we're not like God. So in Psalm 18, verse 30, uh, it says that God is perfect, okay? He has never made a mistake. He's never had to say sorry to someone. He's never acted out of selfishness. He's never made the wrong decision. And God isn't just without sin. He's actually full of grace, Okay? So he doesn't just not sin. He's actually just perfect and full of grace. So Exodus 34, I think we got it on the screen, verse 6, we see that God is merciful. And so he loves forgiving. Uh, he's gracious. He gives what we don't deserve. He's slow to anger, meaning he's patient with us. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning love just oozes from who he is. Uh, anyone here want to claim that you could describe yourself with those same descriptors? Like anyone to claim you're perfect and you're on that same level as God? No. We're, we're, we're broken. We're, we're, we're ungodly. We're not like him, right? Even on my best day, you couldn't describe me with those words. Even on my best day. We break the law. God made the law. We make mistakes. God redeems our mistakes. We are selfish. God is selfless. We lash out in anger. God loves showing mercy. We hold on tightly to what we have. God gave up his best. We hurt people, but God heals people. Amen? Apart from God's grace, all of us are ungodly. So the th second thing the doctor needs to tell us is that you and I are ungodly. We are not like God. Okay? And the third and last descriptor of us, verse 8, it says that we are sinners. We are sinners. In other words, we've broken God's law. So we've all failed and offended God. And so just two chapters earlier, so uh, we're in Romans 5, you just flip over Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice it says all, right? It doesn't say some or a select few. It says all. So question, what about the, uh, what about the kid that grew up in church? All have sinned. Uh, what about my sweet grandma? She's the best. She gives me 20 bucks every Christmas. I love that gift. All have sinned. What about Billy Graham? Man, that guy was a legend. All have sinned. Austin, what about your cute little sweet daughter? Oh, trust me, all have sinned, okay? <laughs> Y'all don't have to worry about that, all right? All have sinned. Every single one of us. There's not this like, oh, a little bit. Or, no, every single one of us is in there. And so let me just explain what I mean by sin. Um, like any good father, like any good father, God gives us rules, guidelines to help us prosper and actually experience joy. Now, uh, just by show of hands, who would consider themselves like true rule followers? If you're like, man, I'm, pre I'm pretty true to the Colleen, couple of you guys, they're not a ton. Okay, yeah, yeah. you're like, is it, is, is it okay for me to raise my hand? I don't want to break the rules. Yeah, it is okay, okay? Uh, check it out. My wife is like a rule follower to the max. Like, she's got just a pristine uh, moral compass, and I told her mine broke. Some, sometime along my life, mine is broken. You know, I don't really know what's good and wrong. Colleen and Mo are the same way. Like, Mo and I are just, we're, it gets messy when we get around each other. We're just not uh, amazing in and of ourselves. So anyways, um, uh, so my wife is such a, a rule follower in some of the ways. Have you guys ever seen those roads, obviously, that just say no U-turn, right? And have you ever been to one of those, like maybe later at night, and there's no other cars on the road, and you need to make a U-turn? What does the normal average American do? 
U-turn, you know? <laughs> my wife, nope, no. She's like, she makes us turn right and then turn right again and then turn right again and then turn left. I'm like, sweetheart, we could have been to McDonald's way quicker, you know, to get the dog in. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, it's just crazy, right? But here's the thing. I don't have a problem with rules. Like I don't innately maybe have, I wouldn't say I have a problem with rules. I have a problem with rules that don't make sense to me, right? I have a problem with rules that don't make sense to me. And so, yeah, stop at a red light makes sense. Your boy's not trying to get T-boned. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to wait for it to start draining. And you should too, you know, so that doesn't happen. But don't turn, don't U-turn when there's no other cars and you can U-turn. I'm not going to listen to that rule. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that's wrong. You guys can pray for me. Uh, You're like, you're openly sinning, you know? I'm sorry. Pray for me. I need grace. But right, but relating this to a spiritual, honest level like, we, we do that same thing with God. Like, he says, hey, here, here's my law. Here's my plan. And we'll say, man, I'll take some things that make sense, like be nice to people. Yeah, I agree with that. But like this, man, I don't really know. If things don't make sense, if the law of God to us doesn't make sense, we just openly neglect it. We're like, I don't, I don't want, I, no, I have an excuse. I don't agree with it. I think better, and so I'm not going to follow it. And this is one of the main reasons we sin. We know his laws, his gracious rules, his loving commands, and then we think, no, it doesn't make sense, and we do what we want. And this isn't just, by the way, something we do. It's actually ingrained in who we are. Like, we are naturally sinful and opposed to God's will. We don't think the way he thinks. We don't want the things that he wants. And so God says, forgive. And we say, you don't know how that person wronged me. God says, hey, don't, don't, don't lie, right? Uh, don't prop yourself up. We say, you don't know what it feels like to live in a culture filled with comparison. God says, hey, uh, man, d- don't, don't have sex before marriage. We say, I just, I love them, though. And, and we're probably going to get married someday. It's just physical anyways, you know. It, it's okay. God says, hey, be, be, be generous with your money. We say, you haven't seen my bills. You haven't seen the debt that I have and that what I have to pay off, right? Friends, at the root of our sin isn't only thinking that God's laws aren't good. It's actually thinking that he's not good, right? Because, it, I mean, if we think that he would give us wrong rules, we don't think he's a good father, right? So um, John 10.10 10 says that God came. Jesus says, I literally came to bring abundant life. Like, that's what I came for, to increase your joy. And so when I tell my daughter, Gracelyn, to not run in the street after a ball, she, it doesn't make any sense to her. She's think, she thinks I'm limiting her, I'm taking joy away from her, I'm making her life more boring. But what I'm actually doing is protecting her from getting hit by a car. You know what I mean? But it doesn't make sense to her. She doesn't see it that way. She thinks I'm putting this hedge around her that's, that's limiting her life and not making it any fun. Um, and I don't give her rules because I want her to have less fun. I give her rules because I want her to live. I want her to thrive. I want her to experience the most joy she can, and it won't be found by running in the street without looking, right? God giving us his law, these gracious rules and loving commands, is not to restrict you and give you a more boring life. It is to propel you and protect you into a further, more beautiful life. And some of you in the room are saying, man, Austin, I just can't relate because, um, because I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp on my life. I feel like I understand it pretty well. I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I've, I've survived. I've been through some things. I think I know better than Graceland. Maybe true, but we have to recognize that we do not know what's best for us because we didn't make us right? Like God, no, we, we see, like, we, we just see the moment and God sees everything, right? He sees eternity. We, we, we just see the trailer and God sees the whole movie. Like you don't, we can't assume that we know better than God. And so when he says something, no, that's, 
There's no room for that. And so if you think you know it all, you are terribly mistaken. God has a bigger picture than you do. And if I can just share some of my story, man, I, I tried it my way. Through college and into uh, and in high school and stuff like that, I tried it my own way, messed around with girls, knew the law of God, command of God, and he said, no, nah, I don't agree with that. And I messed around, and all that got me was regret and hurt and hard conversations with my wife when I met her. I'm so, I had to confess to her and ask for her forgiveness for those things that I messed up with and all the stupid things that I did. I mean, all that did going my way was brought hurt to other people and hurt to myself. More tears, more regret, more women hurt. And, um, and every time I tried my way, thinking I knew better than God, thinking that he didn't have my best interest in mind, like I said, I, I did hurt people and I hurt myself, right? It was devastating. And so we are all guilty of sin. God gave us his beautiful law, and we've happily broken it, chosen our own way, thinking that we know better than him, right? Our way is better than his. We've all gotten hurt and been hurt by sin, but the ultimate offense isn't to each other, it's to God, right? That's the person we've sinned against. Yes, we've sinned to each other, but our ultimate offense is before God. Every single one of us, just to recap, is diagnosed with sin, we're practically unlovable. We are weak, unable to make our own way to God. We're ungodly. We're unlike him, and we're sinners guilty of breaking his law. That is our condition. In case you knew what words would describe you apart from Jesus, weak, ungodly, and sinful. Now, in light of that, let's look at our logic. Uh, read verse 7. Read verse 7. Okay. Uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare um, even to die. Uh, the second thing I want us to see is our logic, our logic, and our logic is conditional. Um, some of you are like, man, this is, man, I thought this was going to be like a fun love Advent sermon, Advent sermon. <laughs> You're like, he's coming in hot. Okay, uh, our logic, conditional. Um, can you just think of who in the world you love most? Who's a person or people that you love more than anything. For, for me, it's my wife, Kristen, and my daughter, Gracelyn. Like, I will, I mean, I love a ton of other people a lot, but those two are like the most special people in my life. I'll do anything for those two. If someone took my wife and said, hey, man, you got to give your, it would just be no second thought. I would do anything. I'll give my life for her. I would step in front of a bullet for her any day. Um, it just, it's a no-brainer. Like, I don't even have to think about it, right? Oh, and by the way, to celebrate with you guys, my wife, Kristen, is pregnant. And, uh, yeah, yeah. One way, one way to grow our church, keep having kids, you know? So, uh, <laughs> but uh, baby uh, Edwards is due in June. So Grace is going to be, a, she is a big sister, so we're really excited. Um, but I love my little family of four, right? They're amazing and precious. And so who is it for you? Who would you do anything for? Who would you die for? Now, um, whoever you're thinking of, I'm willing to bet it's an easy decision, right? Like, yeah, like I'll die for my brother or my sister or my mom or my whoever it is, right? I'll, I'll, I'll die for them. It's an easy decision. You wouldn't need time to think about it. It makes sense. It's logical to you, right? Um, what about Larry Nasser? I talked about Larry a few months ago in one of my sermons, but Larry was the um, uh, Olympic uh, gymnastics doctor, and he was accused of sexually assaulting over 250 women. Okay, that's Larry Nasser, and so he's in prison for the rest of his life now and, uh, and spending it. So I just want to ask, would any of you want to volunteer to serve his time for him? Would any of you just raise your hand and say, yeah, ma'am? And if they, the, you know, court decide, hey, actually, we're going to give him the death penalty, and he's going to die soon, and Larry calls and says, hey, would you mind switching me spots, and I come and live in Lincoln and live your life, and then you come in and, and die for me, would any of you want to volunteer for that? 
No. I'm willing to bet. It's not that we don't want him to meet Jesus or whatever. I'm just willing to bet like none of us are saying, sign me up to trade places with Larry Nasser. So track with me. If we're willing to die for those loved people in our lives, but we're not willing to die for Larry Nasser, what's the difference? Why? Why, why won't we for one but not the other? And so, um, because he's guilty, right? Because he's a bad man, because he deserves to pay for what he's done, because he hurt all those women and he needs to have justice and he needs to know that it was wrong because our logic is conditional, right? And this is what verse 7 is saying. Hey, you might, you maybe just might die for someone good or someone righteous, right? But even then it uses words like scarcely and dare even to die. In other words, um, even for a good or righteous person, it'd be hard, but there is a chance that you would die for them. So if you're in a store and you're waiting in line and a guy walks in with a gun and he points it at a mom with three kids, you might just jump in front of that bullet for that mom. You wouldn't even have to know her, but you would know him. It's probably a good and righteous person, right? So um, in a heroic moment, you might jump in front and die. But you and I wouldn't do that for Larry Nasser. We wouldn't want to switch prison cells for him and stay in his prison cell for the rest of our lives. Why? Because our logic is conditional, right? There are people that we would die for and there are people that we would not. There are people that we would sacrifice for and there are people that we would not, right? It is ingrained into who we are, this conditional logic, and the conditional logic plays out not just in life and death scenarios. I find myself being conditional with my wife, right? I come home and the house is clean and she's happy and she's got like something sweet for dinner and I'm just like, babe, baby, you are the best. Let me massage your back a little bit. Let me get it right. You know what I mean? Like I'm like so sweet to her and I just pursue her so well, but there are times I come home and she's like kind of distant from me and the house is messy and she made meatloaf and I'm like, you know, I don't like meatloaf. You know what I mean? So I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, okay, you are privileged and entitled. You know, I'm working on it. But anyways, um, but then I, you know, some of those days, I mean, I'm being honest, I'm confessing sin. I'm just conditional with my wife. Like I'm, I can be distant from her and not as loving and I intentionally will not pursue her as well because um, she didn't do something right or I'm, I'm angry or whatever. And so I'm sure you can say you do the same thing with your spouse or your friend or your family or your coworker or whatever it may be. We all do this. And the conditional logic is that if you're good to me, I'll be good to you. But if you're bad to me, I won't do anything for you. And so track with me. Putting it all together. Our condition, weak, ungodly, sinful, plus our logic, conditional, equals very bad news. Right? Here's what I mean. We heard the doctor say that all of us are diagnosed as weak and ungodly and sinful. We've all failed. And then one chapter later, if you just flip over and look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you can look at it for yourself. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And so the payment that our sin deserves is death, eternal separation from God and hell. That's Romans 6, 23. And so uh, our condition deserves death. That's how serious it is. And in the Old Testament, God uh, made a sacrificial system. So they would actually kill animals, and it would pay for some of their sins or kind of cover some of their sins. The problem was they'd have to keep coming back and back and back and back because the animals couldn't take away their sins. They had more sin. They have to keep coming back and sacrificing. And so they realized it's insufficient. Like, we need something better. We need something fuller. We need something actually sufficient. Like, it'll no longer do for a lamb to die for someone we, or just some random person. We need, we need someone perfect. And so the only way to escape death is for someone to perfect to die in your place, right? Um, animal won't do, random person won't do, it needs someone perfect. But then verse 7 explains our logic. 
which says that we will only die for someone who we think is good and righteous. But verse 6 says that no one's righteous, right? So there's this massive dilemma if you add it all together. In other words, track with me. Because of our sinful condition, we deserve death, and we need someone to die for us. But according to our logic, people only die for good and righteous people, which none of us are, so no one will die for us. Do you see the problem with our logic and our condition? It's bad news, which leads me to the greatest love story you will ever hear. Romans 5, chapter 8. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. The last thing I want us to see is the unconditional, illogical love of God. The unconditional, illogical love of God. The beginning of verse 8 says that God shows his love for us. Shows is so important for us to understand. And so I had a conversation with a friend recently about God. And as I'm talking to him, I'm wondering, hey, what, what do you believe about God? What, what do I believe about God? Where are the differences and where are the agreements, right? And the main difference between what he thought and what I thought was his, his belief would say, I don't think that God is personal, I don't think he's personally involved in our lives, right? He's a big creator, God in the sky, and, and he does his own things, this you know, energy source, and I just don't believe that he is personally involved in our lives. And so we're talking about it. He's explaining it. I'm like, man, there's some good thoughts. He's saying, the earth is just this tiny little blue ball in one galaxy alongside all these other galaxies. Who we didn't think that God would love little tiny people on that little blue ball in all of the universe. Who are we to think that? How do we know that a God that created all of it would actually love you and actually want you and actually want to be with you? And how, how do you know that? And so this conclusion was God is just a big creator God, and that's it. And there's no personal relation. And it's a deep thought, right? And maybe some of you are wrestling with the same thing. Does God love me? Is God personally involved in my life? Does he want to be with me? And if that is you, your answer is Romans 5, chapter, or Romans 5 verse 8, Right? God showed his love for you. In other words, he wanted you to know without a shadow of doubt that he loves you. Like a boyfriend goes and spends his savings account to buy a ring for the girl he loves to get married to and spend the rest of his life with her, God showed his love for you. He spent it all to show his love for you. You don't have to doubt that he loves you. You don't have to wonder if he cares about you. You don't have to worry if he notices you. He absolutely does, and he proved it in City Light. The way God proved his love for us is so much better than a ring. It is so much more extravagant than the best Hallmark movie there ever has been produced. If you're wondering how God decided to show his love to you without a shadow of a doubt, here it is, Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. The unthinkable happened. I mean, God, the only perfect being in the world, truly good and truly righteous, that God that created the universe, that breathed the sun into existence, that formed human anatomy, he showed you that he loves you by dying for you. Knowing everything, seeing everything in your life, all the dark moments, all the skeletons in your closet, all the regrets you have, he died for you knowing all of it. And in light of our condition and our logic, this love is unconditional and illogical. Amen? It's unconditional because there are no conditions to his death for you. He didn't wait for you to get better. You didn't have to achieve something or get somewhere for him to find us. Like, you know what? I guess I'm going to let him in. I guess I'm going to love him. I guess I'm going to die for him. No. When we were still sinners, he didn't wait for you to get better. And there is this terrible misconception about God that his love is only granted to the clean, not the dirty. 
to the uh, put together, not the messy, to the person in church, not the person in the bar. But friends, this verse destroys that idea. When we were still sinning, when you were still meeting with that guy that you promised you never would, when you were still hurting that person you, never, you promised you never would do, when you ran back to that thing, when you drank that one more drink, when you were still sinning at your darkest moment, he joyfully decided, I'm going to die for you, knowing all of it. There are no conditions to this love that you have to achieve or accomplish. You simply put your faith in the fact that Jesus achieved and accomplished what you never could. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And friends, since we receive him unconditionally, that means that no condition could take us away from him. In other words, you are saved by grace at the point of salvation, and you are sustained by grace for the rest of your life. Since you did nothing to earn this love, you can do nothing to take that love away. He doesn't forget about you. He doesn't change his mind on you. He is forever committed to you on that point of salvation by grace and grace alone. And by the way, this love isn't only unconditional. It's also illogical. Like, it is completely illogical to us. It doesn't make sense. Like, our logic says you have to be good or righteous in order for someone to maybe die for you. And yet, this love that God says, he died for us when we were ungodly and weak and sinful. Right? Jesus didn't die for good and righteous people because there are no good and righteous people. He died for broken, sinful people like you and I. That's an illogical love. And I thought this morning, it's not really my notes, but I thought this morning, man, the, the, the less that God's love makes sense to us, the more it's probably accurate. Does that make sense? Like the less logical God's love is to you, the more accurate it really is. Like it shouldn't make sense to you. Like it, it should just sit you back in your seat and wonder, what? Amidst all the logical, conditional things I do, you, you, you're unconditional and you're illogical. And so here's what we actually celebrate in Christmas. Here's the story that's more captivating than any Hallmark movie that's ever been produced. Luke 2, verse 10 through 11 says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. All people. Weak, ungodly, sinful people. All people, right? Um, For unto you, this is personal, it's a gift, it's directed to you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, You need to be rescued. You need to be saved. You need someone to redeem and come after you. And this Savior, what's his name? Christ the Lord. Jesus, right? The God of the universe saw us, weak, ungodly, sinful people with no way to make our way to him on our own, with no uh, ability to become more like him, with no desire to stop sinning against him. He saw us in our darkest moments. Nothing spurred him on. Nothing moved him or changed him to want to do that With unconditional and illogical love, he says, I'm going to give myself for you. I'm going to give myself for you. Not because you love me, but because I love you. And so God sent his son, Jesus. The father gave his most precious uh, uh, thing he could, his only son, his beloved son, to leave heaven and come down to die for weak, ungodly, sinful people. People like you and me. People like Larry Nassar. And this little baby that we celebrate his birth, friends, he was born to die. He was born with a death sentence. He was born in light of a funeral and then definitely a resurrection, but he was born to die. This little baby was sent to us for one reason, to show God's love by dying for us when we were still sinning. He was strong for the weak. He was perfect for the ungodly. And he was sinless for the sinful. 
for you and I. And I'm praying, I'm begging God, I'm pleading with him. Would some of you in the room experience your first Christmas as a Christian this Christmas? Would God do that? Would he, and a sermon won't do it, a compelling argument won't do it, an equation, a slide won't do it. The Spirit of God has to do that in your hearts. And so I'm begging him to do that, to soften your heart, to believe this. And I know that it's harder to hear that you have a cancer called sin than for me to say, hey, you're doing great, killing it, good job, keep going, you're doing great in and of yourselves. But the most loving thing I can do for you right now is to say that you are dying without Jesus. You have no hope outside of him. Nothing can produce what he can do. Nothing can promise and fulfill what he can promise and fulfill. And you don't have to wait, by the way, until you get better. You don't have to make sure you come to church next week. You don't have to make your life clean or delete that number right now. No, when you are still sinning, Christ died for you. That's how extravagant his love is. And so I'm praying, would you turn from your sin? Would you confess, I am weak, I am ungodly, I am sinful, and God, I believe that you were perfect for me, and I want to trust in you. That's the invitation, an invitation into an unconditional, illogical love of God. Now, in 1971, Bob Dylan wrote a song called Make You Feel My Love. And uh, I don't think, I'm pretty sure, he didn't write it from a Christian perspective or a Christmas perspective. But if you imagine this song sung over you, it's absolutely astounding. And so I'm going to read a couple of the verses for you. He says, When the evening shadows and the stars appear, and there's no one there to dry your tears, I'll hold you for a million years to make you feel my love. There's nothing I wouldn't do, go to the ends of the earth for you, to make you feel my love. For the person in the room who's placed their faith in Jesus, Christmas is a reminder that God went to the ends of the earth for you. There was nothing he wouldn't do for you. That's how much he loves you and wants you to feel his love, to know his love, to be sure of his love. He showed it. And... and <laughs> And maybe some of you Christian, some of the Christians in the room are thinking, man, I feel, I feel weak, ungodly, and sinful right now. And I still, I know Jesus. And as he changes my, can I just say, he died for you when you were doing all those things, and he hasn't regretted that since. Like, he hasn't, he doesn't look at you when you're ungodly and weak and sinful now as a Christian think, man, I, I can't believe I saved them. Man, maybe I shouldn't have. No. He loves you even in those moments. He died for you while you were still sinning, knowing that you still would sin. That's the glory of his gospel. He was born to die, and he did it all joyfully so that you and I, without a shadow of a doubt, would know that he indeed loves you. Friends, there is no greater love story than what Jesus has done for us. Amen? And we get to celebrate that as a family, taking communion this morning. Um, Jesus was born, right? Uh, Sweet baby, uh, and, uh, and like I said, he was born to die. And 30 years later, after living a perfect life, never sinning once, being absolutely perfect, healing blind eyes, loving people, caring for people, he actually went to a real cross, like a real cross, and was pinned to it and died on that cross to raise three days later. But nonetheless, he died. And before he died, he told his disciples, he said, hey, I'm going to give you some wine, some Juice in our day. I'm going to give you some, uh, um, we get rowdy if we start going wine. But anyways, um, I'm going to give you bread and, 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 and take this in remembrance of me. And it was before it even happened. We say, remember what I've done for you. That my, the, the bread represents his body. That it was actually broken for weak, ungodly, sinful people like you and I. That the juice represents his blood that was actually shed joyfully for sinful, weak, ungodly people like you and I. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. 
that I died for you when you were still sinning, and I love you even now when you are still sinning, and I'm compelling you into a fuller life to stop sinning and trust in, in me and walk with me. Um, and so uh, if you are a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus, I would love to invite you to take communion this morning. Um, take the bread, dip it in the juice, um, and we'll kind of be in a line. But just to remember that God loves you, that he died for you when you're still sinning as you take that. Um, you haven't, you're not self-made. He, he's done it exclusively. For the person in the room that hasn't trusted in Jesus, my plea to you is to do that. Like, or talk to me or someone. What's holding you back? What's the, what's the thing you're holding on to? What's your skewed view of God? And I'd love to talk about that. But if you do feel like the Spirit of God prompting your heart in this moment to give your life over to Jesus, to repent and turn from your sin, do that. Like, you don't have to wait to get better. You don't have to make sure you come next, whatever it is. Like, do that. In this moment, respond to him. Repent, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus, love, love, love to invite you into that. And if you aren't, uh, haven't accepted Jesus, I'd love for you to stay seated or stand, uh, but don't take communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will go.